start the week with Tim and Damo on the Unmade Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Tim Burrows. As we record, it's 7am on a Monday morning in Sydney. And it's still Sunday night in London. Today, could Seven West Media and HT&E merge? A busy week ahead for the media with the budget, Shane Warne's memorial and perhaps an election call too. The AAP goes direct to consumer. And the verdict is in on the new Qantas ad. Unmade. So there is a risk we turn this into the weekly Grand Prix chat, but generally when we record this, it has just taken place. So Damien, I I take it you were up early this morning to watch the action from Jeddah? I was, Tim. Maybe we should start Unmade Formula One podcast, but uh, I was. I was up at about four, a bit after 4am, a lot happening in the race, a lot happening outside of the race as well. There's a fair bit of politics going on, especially with that... uh, uh, missile attack just outside of Jeddah a couple of days ago as well. So a lot of action. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't watched, but a good race to watch and, and small spoiler alert with no names. Tim, you got some of the crashes you asked for last week. I did, but as usual, I'm happy that nobody was hurt, but I still enjoyed the action. Absolutely. And now you were uh, hitting the town in London this week. Yeah, I had a couple. Well, was, last was, week, I should say. I'm getting yeah, ahead of myself. Yeah, just gone. Yeah, no, it was it was good fun because I, I had a dinner with a few kind of agency and industry types. So it was really good getting the pulse of what's going on as certainly it feels like things are beginning to get going internationally again in the media and marketing world. Um, interesting, just picking up a, a little bit of a vibe that um, there are – recruiters out and about in the London market looking to recruit people into Australia. So uh, that's quite interesting. It's That side of things is definitely gearing up. So, so I think we might see some British talent headed in the direction of Australia. So, so that was interesting. And then, yes, I even I went into the Omnicom building as well, which is a, a couple of towers on Bankside, which is uh, all very uh, shiny and corporate. And that'll be the topic of a, a, a future podcast in a few weeks' time. Unmade. Right, oh, Tim, should we get straight into the first topic of the morning? Yeah, let's do it. Where do you want to start? I reckon Seven and HT&E's merger speculation would be a good place to start, Tim. This was from Zoe Samios in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning, uh, and she's reported that uh, two major shareholders in HT&E, Alan Gray and Sphere Asset Management, are not against a tie-up. Now, combined, they own 28% of HT&E. Now, this is a really interesting one because you, of course, have, have written a lot about the, the possibilities for both HT&E and Seven. What's your sort of take on, on how this one could land? I think this is interesting. I mean, firstly, there are some big ifs. It's all speculative, apart from the fact that um, the shareholders have spoken on the record to, as you say, it was um, the, um, Zoe Samuels and the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So they have they, they they could have killed this one stone dead if they wanted to, and they haven't. Um, if it happened, I guess it would be the biggest media merger since uh, Nine and Fairfax came together about five years ago. So there, there are a few logics to it. Um, one is in terms of the journey they've both been on. So we, we've we seen in the last few months, Seven 
successfully take over Prime or the Prime assets, Prime Media, which are the regional uh, TV stations, uh, to become a fully national offering, sort of Metro plus regional. And we've seen a very similar thing happen with HT&E. HT&E stands for here, there and everywhere, and is the owner of, amongst other things, Australian Radio Network. And that's its major asset. And ARN, amongst other things, owns uh, the KISS radio network and then the kind of the gold radio network, which um, includes the market leading station in in Melbourne and the often market leading station in uh, FM market leading station in in Sydney, which is uh, WSFM. Um, so there, there is some logic there because of them both having the um, uh, similarities um, and then, of course, we, we we also have some, for want of a better word, commonalities of the ownership as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Alan Gray has a 19% stake uh, in HT&E, and, and it's the biggest stake in their MD, Simon Morwini, and apologies if I'm uh, pronouncing that slightly incorrectly, uh, said that uh, facilitating a merger or takeover uh, under the right terms uh, could be beneficial, um, but would prefer to focus on betting down the the acquisition of grant broadcasters first. But as you say as well, uh, Safiria, there's commonality there in the sharehold. They have shares in both HT&E and Seven. Do you think for uh, Kieran Davis, for James Warburton, this will become a, a prominent part of 2022 or, or do they have other things that they need to bed down first? Well, look, it, it's certainly a case that everybody's talking to everybody. So as you say, James Warburton, Warburton CEO of Seven and Kieran Davis, CEO of HT&E, um, the players. Yeah, Sphere is interesting because... They certainly made um, made it easier for Seven to do the takeover of Prime because if I remember rightly, Sphere had held a stake in Prime, and when the deal couldn't be done the first time, when Seven was trying to do it sort of through through a sort of a share based merger, Sphere ended up sharing. Um, ended up selling their stake in Prime to Seven, which eventually helped them get the deal done a little bit later on so so it's worth bearing in mind yeah these are just pragmatic you know shareholders who they're in it for an investment and you know they they would look for the right deal and there's certainly an argument that scale is one of the things that um they're all looking for at the moment um i doubt there would be too much in the way of a triple C issues in terms of competition. Um, the only one I'd want to think about a bit is although the rules have been relaxed on, um, you know, there used to be the rules about um, uh, you, you, you could be in two out of three markets and that sort of thing. There is still a minimum number of voices rule. And I wonder in some of the regional areas where there are fewer outlets, whether a merger would actually take that number down. So I wouldn't want to think that one through on the fly, but that would be certainly something worth just thinking through practicalities. You might see some of the radio stations potentially needing to be offloaded if the law stayed as it stands. 
Now, one other thing that uh, the piece did cover as well was a potential interest from Seven in investing in outdoor as well. Could be a big year for outdoor. What are your thoughts on that, Tim? I must admit, my guess is I think it will be a little while before a deal is done on outdoor just because the the industry itself hasn't really bounced back from the COVID downturn and you know, outdoor suffered far more than most. You know, understandably, commuters weren't commuting, uh, airlines weren't flying, all of those things where people might place billboards. And that that hasn't fully bounced back yet. Their share prices haven't bounced back in terms of people like O-Media, for instance. So I think to get a fair valuation for outdoor, you could see outdoor companies wait into a year when their revenues have kind of normalised again. Um you know, we, we, we've got a lot of visibility of O-Media Limited because they're on the ASX, but QMS are really worth watching. They're now owned by private equity through Quadrant, um, who, you know, again, it's a deal-minded company, but it just feels like it wouldn't get the best deal just yet. So that that would be the question for me on how an outdoor owner could justify to themselves being willing to be part of a deal on their current valuation. So that's what make me, makes me think it will be a little while before something gets done in outdoor. And, you know, my guess, and I've said it before on this podcast, I think, was one day QMS and HTE. But, um, yeah, maybe the next logical thing, and, you know, everybody does seem to be like deal makers at the moment, could be, you know, as um, this article in the um, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age is suggesting, could just be uh, 7 and HT&E. It does make sense to me. And Tim, just to finish off, there was also an interesting announcement recently from SCA confirming that they were looking to sell the regional TV arm. Yeah, that's right. So there's been speculation about that for a while. In the main, um, SCA's regional TV networks are affiliated with 10, which is owned by paramount on the global level you've got seven uh, now owns prime uh, nine is firmly in bed with um uh win win um including uh, the owner bruce gordon being the biggest shareholder of nine so so it would suggest that if if sca does pursue its main ambitions to be an audio company um then the logical acquirer at the right price would be almost certainly paramount in some way. The only other question that does occur, and actually I, I do thank the, the the reader of Unmade who uh, popped it in on the, the, the comment thread in the piece I wrote about this over the weekend. They make the point that um, Seven does actually uh, supply its signal to some SCA stations, including in Tasmania and the NT and some remote parts of Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia. So Seven could be a buyer, potentially, of some of those SCA TV stations in those parts. Next, a big news week for the networks. Unmade. Let's turn to the Australian's media diary, which we don't always get to on a Monday. Anything interesting in there this week, Damo? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Two big things in media this week. Uh, the budget, of course, which takes place on Tuesday, and uh, Shane Warne's funeral, which takes place on Wednesday evening. And 
what's been talked about this week in, in terms of the media, the Australian uh, media diary talking about how the breakfast TV stations uh, are going to be covering the two arguably largest topics of the week. And, of course, when we talk about breakfast, we're talking about ABC, we're talking about seven and nine as well. And one of the interesting uh, theories here is that none of them are actually going to be broadcasting from Parliament House, as we usually see camped out in front. And one of the reasons being is that there's speculation that not a lot of the politicians are actually going to be walking by for the uh, usual interviews that, that are done during that morning. So most of the action will be happening in Melbourne, focusing on Shane Warne's memorial. But it's a, an interesting thing to look at, particularly when you look at Seven and, and Koshi and his financial uh, heritage in, in particular. But more so than that, this budget is going to be particularly interesting and I would have thought uh, very intriguing for the majority of, uh, of citizens of Australia being that we are in a cost of living crisis. We're expecting uh, a potential handouts from the government for low to middle income earners, which would affect the majority of Australians. There's a lot to be unpacked from this budget. So interesting to, to hear the speculation on how the, the networks are going to be covering that across breakfast. But Tim, what did you think about how the Australian was suggesting it was going to play out? Interesting, because often certainly i think the likes of abc news breakfast i'm pretty sure the presenters do the the lock-in during the day the day before so they can be on top of the budget by the time it comes it it, it all drops some on, on on the tuesday evening and then they have to report on it on the wednesday so so that is interesting now i suppose technically they could do the lock-in and then still get to melbourne so i don't know if that's a possibility or not um and then of course the other thing that makes this also fascinating is we've got the politics around an election and I've got a bit of a hunch this is going to be the cost of living election because it's moving up the agenda so fast you know we you know as you know I'm I'm in the UK at the moment where the UK had their sort of half year budget last week and the inflation rate is absolutely shot up above 6% now. Now, Australia is only a bit more above half that, but moving up fast as well. Affordability is going to be huge. And of course, outside of the budget and outside of the election, that's going to be a massive theme for the rest of the year for marketers as well. Anyone working marketing, price and affordability is going to be a hugely relevant factor. Um I guess if there is one lesson for the Australian um, uh, government or for the coalition based on last week was I don't really think that the, the, the ruling Conservative Party here got on top of just how concerned the public were about cost of living. So their budget was very, very negatively received. We'll see whether... Um, the same happens in terms of the politics and the reporting come come Tuesday night when we learn the content of the Australian budget. That, of course, is what's not already been leaked to all of the newspapers this morning. So, of course, you also in a shout out to the best of the week, which dropped on Saturday because you did cover the, I guess, the marketing aspect of, of this cost of living crisis. But do you think then that uh, come Wednesday morning, breakfast TV, that they could be missing a trick if they're not 
giving substantial coverage to the budget or at least having a bit more of a focus on on that if they're not out front of, of Parliament House? Well, it's something that was very noticeable for me for all of the media in the UK the week just gone, which again would be, you know, uh, I'm sure something the Australian media will be thinking about at the time, is how heavily and how deeply it went into the effects of inflation on ordinary people at the moment, people not being able to afford to fill their cars, go to work, stay on top of debt, all of those things. And they found lots of different ways of humanising that. And I'm talking about television, I'm talking about radio, I'm talking in newspapers and online. So it really felt like something that human stories were being told. And I think that will be the, I mean, it's always the challenge, post budget but rather than just have the you know the token thing of you know find a couple of people to say they've got a little bit more in you know in their pay packet and they've got you know two children and a car or whatever really deeply drilling into that affordability question so yeah i think that um i i think that will be a challenge for the media and of course i wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the week or certainly a few days after that maybe the weekend um an election does officially get called So, Tim, just to wrap this section up, there's a few open-ended questions, particularly when it comes to the government, which will probably uh, be answered or uh, be furthered when the election is called. Uh, What do you think could be happening there? Look, for me, the big questions will be what does Labour intend for its media policy? Because uh, there's a there are a lot of things which are half done with the, the the current coalition government, and of course there's a probably better than even chance that Labour will will will, will get to form the next government. The big two are there's another round of media reforms on the way, um, which had been flagged by Paul Fletcher, but not finished and not done. That includes over uh, anti siphoning the sports the rules keeping sport protected for free to air television. And the digital platforms inquiry is another one. So that's only halfway through its five-year run from the ACCC. So whether the uh, any future Labour government or new government has the same appetite to continue to challenge the dominance of the digital platforms, that will be absolutely fascinating to hear what their policy is on that as well. And then, of course, we might see wider media ownership reforms. Hey, you know talked a few minutes ago about um, the potential um, loss of voices rule in the regions. That's something else that I'm sure there'll be some lobbying on. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what both parties have to say about their policies on media reform going in. Coming up next, the AAP goes direct to consumer. So, Damien, interesting piece in the Australian Financial Review this morning uh, as the Australian Associated Press, which is uh, Australia's newswire service, uh, trying to find new ways of surviving and finding new kind of streams of revenue in the long term. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Uh, Like you said, going direct to consumer and launching an app and a website which showcases uh, the AAP's journalism. Um, Now, this is... Uh, particularly for donors and supporters, or so says Lisa Davies, the CEO, who was, of course, the former uh, editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. 
It was suggested that this is a way of exploring new revenue models. So it's a $10 a month uh, access fee, uh, but a lot of, not all, of the AAP's content will be showcased in, in the app and the website. And it's just a new way really to explore what the AAP does for those that are interested in, and showcase that to potential new clients as well, because that was one of the other things that uh, Lisa spoke about uh, was uh, actually trying to get new clients on board, not just the the main media people that I guess they're used to, but others, I- including clients that they already have, like the AFL and Microsoft, for example. So a little bit uh, different to what you may think uh, the the AAP would usually be catering for, expanding uh, that set, but also trying to find new supporters. And it's probably worth trying to explain a bit of their history of how they're funded and and where they came from. So the the AAP obviously used to be owned by the major back in the day newspaper companies, and gradually the funding began to fall away as they merged. And then the final blow was when basically Nine and News Corp both decided to go their own way. News Corp has its new sort of internal wire service now. Um, Nine obviously sort of does its own reporting. And because that was the major funding of the AAP, that created a huge challenge. But, you know, they're really important to Australian democracy, you know. It's often, if you're going to have someone sitting in court, for instance, it's an AAP reporter. So it's things like that that are kind of important. Um, I suppose this slight worry or concern for them in sort of now, rather than just selling their services, which effectively what it was, was selling their services to other media owners who would have the right to republish the AAP AAP content then the the idea of making it available directly to the public is well i suppose firstly does it devalue that content if someone else is going to buy it and secondly does it sort of also position it as a kind of competitor to those people as well so it does feel like it's going to be a bit of a tap dance yeah i sort of saw it more as a a content marketing play in a sense that they're they're trying to speak to the donors they're trying to get more support they're not suggesting this is a mass market uh, strategy here. Uh, and look, it, it could work for them. Anything to really show off what they're capable of and what they can do and draw in more clients uh, is probably going to be a good thing for for AAP. Next, the verdict on the big new Qantas campaign. Unmade. So I felt a little bit of nostalgia creeping on Friday demo when I saw the new Qantas ad uh, two years after we were supposed to see it. Uh, Remember, I think it was in early 2020. It might even have been in late 2019 when we were both hanging out in Hangar 96, Qantas's big hangar at Sydney Airport. It was, uh, it was, it was part of Project Sunrise, this, this plan to fly direct from Sydney to London. And um, it was a delivery flight of a 787, if I remember rightly. That's right. But really also building, building up excitement about the centenary as well, which was, was was well did take place in 2020 but in very different circumstances um so we finally seen the campaign that was prepared for that um going back to um uh, that old uh, classic of i still call australia home
So, uh, what do we think of it? Yeah, it, it all Qantas ads for me, Tim, seem to bring a bit of uh, emotion, uh, some you know very warm feelings about being Australian. This one was particularly interesting in that there was a, I guess a. a, a Big wave of celebrities in Adam Goods and Ash Barty, Kylie Minogue, Troy Sivan all make appearances uh, as well and a whole heap of, of different landscapes. Not a huge amount of aeroplanes. I'm a big aeroplane fan. We didn't see huge amounts. The 787 uh, featured towards the end. But um, look, I think particularly as travel increases uh, again and uh, Qantas is suggesting it's going to get beyond pre-pandemic levels this year on the domestic front anyway, it's a really good sign to the market that that Qantas is back doing what it loves, doing what it does best uh, and representing uh, Australia as well. I think it was a good, uh, I guess, return to, to what Qantas should be, but I have a feeling, Tim, that you might have a slightly different sort of look on on that. Again, based on on best of the week and and some of the interesting aspects of the brand that you picked up on there. Hey, look, I I mean, I think for the ad itself, hey, job well done. The easiest possible thing is to try and mix things up and just change for the sake of change. Yet this is such an iconic uh, piece of music and so associated with Qantas, then. Um, it might not feel particularly exciting or interesting to to the agency, which is the monkeys in in just doing that piece of music again. But they've done it well. They've done it with celebrities. So you know, tick right right strategy, uh, well executed. Um, for me, the the the, the thing you were alluding to was I, I wrote about it a bit in best of the week is. I'm and hey, this is genuinely not a complaint because this this isn't a problem I've experienced personally. But something that's really crossing my radar a lot is people becoming really frustrated about waiting times. There's a real customer experience issue for Qantas now, where it would seem that any time somebody has to speak to Qantas on the phone, the wait time is more than three hours um not not just in exceptional times but it would seem like all the time at the moment now you know this is a this is a brand that's done so well coming through the pandemic uh and i think one of the things maybe maybe it's kind of um having to deal with now is it gave such flexibility in booking including the ability to make fee-free changes uh so a lot of people are now hitting the phones and they're not coping and that feels like people might forgive it for a few weeks, but this has been going on for a while now. And I think they're, they're at real risk of doing some brand damage if they don't get on top of it. Well, that's about all we've got time for. There's been a lot been going on this morning. Before we go, just a reminder, if you didn't see it at the time, last week we published our first special report, Debo's Deep Dive into Insurance. Um. Dave, you would have thought that insurance marketing would be dull, but it's anything but. Absolutely anything but, Tim. One of the most interesting sectors in the market, I would argue, at the moment. Some key campaigns coming out of massive groups like IAG, Auto and General. Uh, also, some interesting strategies from lesser known groups, but still very big brands within them, uh, like Outsurance, uh, for example, and uh, just a lot going on in the market. And also on the other side of that, a lot not going on from some key brands who, when you think about it, a lot of people probably expected 
far more from them over the last six to 12 months. So a fascinating area, some very interesting insights. We've got some research in there from SMI, from Kantar, as well uh, from YouGov. So uh, a big wrap on the, the, the major campaigns and the major statistics that will set you up well for the the insurance market and what's to come up from that. And fascinating, fascinating sector. Well, if you didn't spot it last week, do go back and find it at unmade.media. And that is it for today. We'd love to hear what you think of everything we've been talking about at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. There'll be another edition of the Unmade email on Wednesday and the next edition of the Unmade podcast will drop on Thursday with the next chapter of the audio version of Tim's book, Media Unmade. And we are getting to the final chapters now. It's chapter 22 this week, Polarising, Paying and Staying. If you want to understand the psyche of News Corp, then this is where I attempt to analyse it. And if you haven't yet given us a rating in the podcast catcher of your choice, please do so. It definitely helps other people find us. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Toodle peg. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.